And now on WRS, Michael McKay with the McKay Interview. Hello, everyone. Being in Geneva, I'm always well aware of its long-standing multilateral reputation and its unrivaled position as a city of peace, negotiation, and reconciliation. In neutral Switzerland, Geneva has no military credentials, just the opposite. However, being the home of the disarmament talk since the early 1930s, the home of the United Nations, and the home of its predecessor, League of Nations, which rose out of the ashes of the Great War, remember the war to end all wars, it's important to look square on at the security issues that confront the world in 2020 and beyond. To help me and to help all of you, dear listeners, I'm privileged to have the head of the world's oldest security think tank at the other end of my Skype microphone today. My guest is Dr. Karen von Hippel, Director General of the Royal United Services Institute, known by its acronym RUSI. Now, RUSI was founded in 1831, making it the oldest defense and security think tank in the world at the initiative of the Duke of Wellington. Its original mission was to study naval and military science. Before joining RUSI, Dr. von Hippel served for nearly six years in the U.S. Department of State as a senior advisor in the Bureau of Counterterrorism, then as Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations, and finally as Chief of Staff to General John Allen, Special Presidential Envoy for the Global Coalition to Counter ISIL. That was back in the Barack Obama presidency. Prior to that, she co-directed the post-conflict reconstruction project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C., and was Senior Research Fellow at the Center for Defense Studies at King's College in London. She's also worked for the United Nations and the European Union in Somalia and Kosovo and has direct experience in over two dozen conflict zones. Dr. von Hippel, Karen, if I may, welcome to the McKay interview and thanks for joining me from London across cyberspace. Well, thank you, Michael, for uh, inviting me on your show. It's a real pleasure to be here and I look forward to a, an interesting conversation about a number of issues. Me too. Now, Cam, most of us, me included, do not have the advantage that you have of looking on global issues from a very well-informed position, rather like a drone or an eagle's eyrie, you're able to identify what is really important. Now, we live and act locally, at least a lot of us do, reacting to circumstances around us. Karen, what do you see from your rather envious position as, the survey, as you survey the big picture of global security? Well, I guess I would start out by saying I've never been more concerned about the challenges that we're facing today. And while I may have an interesting vantage point, I certainly don't have all the answers. I mean, we are dealing with some really extraordinary security challenges. Uh, and I think that they're different from previous eras for a few reasons. So we're dealing with a resurgent Russia, uh, an assertive and growing superpower in China. We're dealing with the U.S. withdrawing from its superpower role that it's been in since the second end of the Second World War, this leadership role that it's provided globally. Uh, President Trump has really withdrawn from that role. We're dealing with uh, issues in Europe, such as Brexit. And then, of course, to, to, to add an additional layer of complexity, we've got this global pandemic that we were really not prepared for, even if many of us had anticipated it. Now, the reason I was saying it's different than in previous eras is because in previous times, we have dealt with numerous challenges, but the US has played an important leadership role. The US has really withdrawn and that anchor has, has, has uh, not, or that, that vacuum hasn't been filled by another country or organization. 
you mentioned the UN at the start. The UN, unfortunately, has not been able to even lead on issues related to this pandemic. And I worry about the influence of the UN. I'm a friend of the UN, but I worry about its future if it does not reform in some pretty significant ways. So I think we're facing many, many challenges, and we don't all have a plan that we agree on to address these many challenges. It's a bit of a free-for-all right now. Okay, we're going to come back later to the uh, the role of the United States, but let, 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 let's um, examine some other things in terms of your big picture vantage point. You're an American academic and professional now based in London, leading the world's oldest security think tank with an impressive and long-standing reputation. I've no doubt you were trained, Cal, to analyze dispassionately, but I ask you now to indulge me just a little and tell me how your big picture would look if you were sitting this morning and we were recording this interview, instead of you being in London, but rather in Washington, D.C., or in Beijing, or in Tokyo, or Moscow, or Berlin, or even New Delhi, what would you see? Well, it's a good question. I think uh, I would be seeing some of the very similar macro issues, but at the local level, I would be hearing different perspectives. If I were in a country such as Russia, I may not have access, or China, to the uh, array of press that I do here in the UK or I would in the United States. So I think I would be fed a stream of information that those governments wanted to feed me. Uh, but I think my view from here versus uh, Washington DC or Tokyo or Berlin wouldn't be that different. It's just I would be much more immersed in the local politics. Uh, I am an American academic and uh, professional, but I also have a German passport. So I have a slightly European perspective as well on many of these issues. So let me ask you another question, but again, from a different perspective. And here I mentioned COVID-19. We can't have a discussion without it. In your experience, how good are experts like you at predicting future scenarios? if not events, future scenarios. And we're, we're in the middle of this COVID-19 uh, pandemic, as you said, and this makes future watching particularly chancy. Scientific predictions say a vaccine might be ready for universal use by this time next year or into 2022, if we're lucky. Who knows? What future scenarios, Karen, in terms of global security do you see over the horizon? And on a scale of, let's say, one to five, what do you think are the two or three big issues over the geopolitical horizon that ordinary people like me just cannot see and even experts like you might miss or not fully appreciate? And does cybersecurity feature in that? Okay, lots of very big questions. Of, uh, <laughs> thank you, Michael. That's I mean, the let's blessing just start... of being the question master. <laughs> right, right. Let's start out with predicting. I think, look, experts aren't necessarily any better than the public at predicting what might happen. And there have been a number of studies that, that look at that. I think what you can distinguish, though, is, uh, is governments listening to those who anticipate risk and then being prepared for it. And I think... If you take the pandemic as an example, many governments, the UK, the US, I'm sure the Swiss government uh, had, uh, were certainly aware of what a pandemic would do to the population and that it was on the horizon. The United States National Security Council had a pandemic, uh, had a pandemic watch, had a, a whole program dedicated to how to manage pandemics. And that was disbanded and has been disbanded really under President Trump when John Bolton was National Security Advisor. Now, he will say, well, it was merged into another program, but nevertheless, they uh, they really, uh, let's just say they, they were less interested in taking such a threat there seriously. But I think other governments, well-meaning governments even, 
uh, may not have taken it as seriously because it's a bit of a, it's not really an unthinkable, but it's an, it's an, uh, it's an unpalatable. It's something that is so enormous and you have to dedicate so many resources to prepare that if you don't think it's going to happen, you feel like you'll get uh, in trouble for setting aside so many resources to prepare for something that isn't going to happen. Now, I think countries in East Asia that have experienced all sorts of epidemics, whether it's SARS or uh, or bird flu or other other issues in the Middle East <clears> and <throat> MERS, they've had Ebola in Africa. So places that have experienced these, uh, I think, have better preparation <clears throat> now. And I suspect going forward, we won't see these kinds of efforts disbanded in most of our countries. I think there'll be much better preparedness. But I think it does it does make you realize that we were so woefully unprepared for this pandemic. Most countries were at the national level, but also at the international level. Our international, we don't have an international architecture to manage these kinds of crises. And these are kinds of crises that we need to work together on. They're just simply not issues that can be managed at the local level. We're only as strong as our weakest link. The second you open your border, you will be impacted by somebody traveling into your country. Mm. And so it, these are issues where we really need to work better. And we do need a better, global infrastructure, global architecture that can anticipate, that can plan, that can manage, mitigate these kinds of global disasters, whether it's cybersecurity, as you as you mentioned, uh, all sorts of global, they call the black sky hazards or, or black swans. You've heard these terms before. There are all sorts of, of, of ones that we think we know about and there are others that we don't know about, but we need to be much better prepared going forward to manage because as we've seen, the global economy is suffering because of what happened in one country and how that spread. Right. And it's it's just having such an extraordinary impact. So we do need to do much better than we've done now. And I'm slightly worried that we're not doing as well, partially because we have too many populist leaders globally and they're not interested in global collaboration. They're not interested in international partnerships and alliances. They don't really believe that they make a difference. And I think that, you know, assuming, uh, you know, we, we get to talk about the U.S. election. I think that one of the, you know, if, if Joe Biden, former Vice President Joe Biden wins, he is absolutely a believer in partnerships and alliances. And as we've seen from President Trump, he just doesn't have, he doesn't believe that anyone can do anything for the U.S. And it's basically, you know, as he keeps saying, it's America first. He doesn't care about other places. And it's just not going to work in this complicated world. So, let me press you before we leave that question. To use a boxing expression, we know the right hook is COVID-19, but is there a left hook out there that you want to hazard a guess that might hit us in the next couple of years that we're just not simply aware of? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly, look, there are uh, pandemics that could be far more lethal than this pandemic. So on the public health side, there's certainly... So you see on the public health side. But then there's also, uh, you know, say the internet goes down globally, whether it's caused by human agency or some sort of humanitarian disaster. You know, we have cables under the sea, concerns that the Russians or another country might cut those cables. Mm. Uh, you know, our global commerce could be, uh, could be, you know, could come to a halt and it could really impact livelihoods in significant ways. We could have the electric grid go down for a significant period of time. I mean, there's so many things, there's so many ways that we are interdependent. And I think that's one thing we have learned from this crisis is that we're far too dependent on countries such as China. Uh, we don't, you know, with all this just-in-time delivery systems, we just don't have redundancies and backups built into our system. Mm -hmm. So you you will see countries going forward 
trying to uh, what they use terms such as decouple or deglobalize, try to build more critical, whether it's critical industry products or even agriculture, try to do more of that closer to home or at least build in redundancies and try to reduce their dependency on China for sure going forward. Okay, thanks. My guest today is Dr. Karen Thornhipple, Director General of the world's oldest defense and security think tank, the Royal United Services Institute, or RUSI, in London, and we're talking on Skype. Karen, we're here having a conversation just five weeks before the U.S. presidential election. In fact, in five weeks from today, the election will be over, and the result might be known, or the counting of ballots will still be taking place. Here's my question, or a number of questions again. Is the outcome really so crucially important for all of us who are non-Americans? Aren't U.S. politics nowadays just an internal, rather vulgar TV reality show shared with the world through 24-7 rolling news? I wonder how many of our listeners, for example, saw last night's so-called pre-election debate, and how much credibility, in your view, does the USA have left in the foreign policy arena, at least? And by the way, who do you think will win on the 3rd of November? <laughs> yeah, well, look, that, those are great questions. I actually think your first question was an excellent question. Is the outcome so important? I think President Trump has already demonstrated that rather than elevating America, getting more respect for America globally, he's done it the exact opposite and in an accelerated way. He's been an accelerant for, for, for a process that was going on for some time because we are in a more multipolar world. I think if Trump wins a second time, I think the UN, UN, United States really will get marginalized and it won't be as important of a country. It still may be a large economy or may not be, but other countries just won't listen to it anymore and will get on with things on their own. How they do that is a, is a, is a different type of conversation yeah. we could have. But in terms of the debate last night, yeah, I actually stupidly woke up at 2 a.m. because it was a pretty <laughs> nasty experience, as you said. It was, you know, just Trump was constantly interrupting him. He was trying to get Biden off of his game. He wouldn't let him finish a sentence. And he he still will not commit to abiding by the results of the election. He even called on his white nationalist supporters. He said, stand by. He yes, didn't I, say, I yeah, I mean, it was quite extraordinary. In fact, they just adopted that as their motto. They put that up on Twitter. Yeah. So he's really preparing his 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 supporters to potentially be violent if he doesn't like the results. Now, I think that the results could be slow in coming in. Uh, there are a few crucial states like Florida that will not be slow in coming in. Florida has done absentee ballots for many, many years, and they're yeah. very good, and they count as they come in. Yeah. So it could be that Florida announces on the night. Now, Florida is still very close. There are other states that may not uh, be able to report the results for weeks. And, of course, if he does manage to shoehorn in his Supreme Court justice, he may try to get them to decide the results of the election, as he actually admitted in the debate. So it's going to be really ugly. And I think uh, if you're a Trump supporter, you know, you're probably pretty pleased that he's being so aggressive. If you're a Biden supporter, you really have to hope that Trump not only loses, but loses big and loses big in the Senate as well, mm -hmm. because I think that's the only way people can then push him out the door, basically. Just, he won't have just, support in the Senate. Just, sorry, Karen, just for those who don't follow politics that closely in America, is one third of the Senate is up for re-election on this occasion, correct? Something like that, yeah. yeah. I think it's every, every yeah, it's a six-year term, and so they stagger mm. them. Yeah. So every two, yeah, every every election, there's some that are up, and there's some crucial states that are quite close. In fact, I grew up in Alaska, yeah. and surprisingly, even though Alaska has long been a Republican state, uh, it's now very close, which is quite interesting. I, I was sort of surprised to learn that. 
Um, so there are a couple of states like Alaska, like Maine, where uh, Susan Collins, who is a moderate Republican, may lose because of her support for Brett Kavanaugh. There are a couple other states where uh, the Senate race is pretty tight. Uh, uh, even even Lindsey Graham may not survive. He likely yeah. will, but he may not survive. So I think often what happens is when, you know, when, when they vote for the president, then they do what they call a down ballot. They then vote for the same party down the ballot. And so it is possible if, if Biden does well, then the Dems will do well across the board again. OK, let's go back to geopolitics, Karen. China, I have a rather long question. My, my questions tend to be a bit long. Surely, Karen, it, China behaves like other big powers have throughout history, especially those run by communist parties. It throws its weight around, cajoles, and where it has to, it bullies weaker people as far as it can get away with. However, they themselves were once bullied, and so the Chinese would say, by what they call the foreign invaders, the Mughals, as long ago as the 13th century, and then the Europeans, the British, the French, the Portuguese, the Germans, had their captured enclaves along China's coast from the 17th century. And then, of course, the Japanese in the 20th century. And I think your professional background and knowledge, you'd be the first to acknowledge that the American Republic, great as it claims to be, supported some pretty unpleasant right-wing anti-democratic governments not so long ago in Latin America, for example. My question about China is this, isn't it only behaving as history would predict? And what can be done to maintain conflict-free regional and even global equilibrium? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question because I think, interestingly, if you listen to China, the Chinese leaders were always saying, you know, we aren't interested in power. We're just trying to build up our economy. We're trying to protect Chinese investments globally. Uh, you know, we aren't interested in asserting ourselves. We're not interested in being a superpower. They had a, a phrase that they used about biding their time. Uh, and all of a sudden, with the election of President Xi, that has changed, and he has become far more assertive, and and is acting, as you say, like many other, uh, like many other uh, superpowers have acted, or, or or rising powers have acted, and so he is asserting himself. There, Chinese diplomats are threatening diplomats all over Europe and elsewhere if they don't like their behavior, if they don't, if they're calling out China for for bad practices, or if they're trying to invite the Dalai Lama to speak, or whatever it may be. Uh, the the Chinese diplomats are getting incredibly aggressive. Uh, I've heard similar stories here in Geneva from from you know sources that I believe very much. Right, so of course, and you saw yeah. that you saw that here publicly uh, in the debate over Huawei and when the Brits changed their mind about yeah. or reevaluating Huawei, they were threatening the UK, and so uh, and they were doing that publicly. And so I think it's also a sign of an immature, growing power. Uh, I think. You know, China, I wouldn't say, you know, China China is such an important country. Its economy is so important. We all have to live to work with it. It's not a question of with us or against us, as the Americans keep trying to push their allies into, you know, into think about China. But we all have to work work with China, and we have to live in this gray area. And I think uh, Angela Merkel said it best when she said China is not just a... Uh, a partner, but it's also a competitor. And mm. look, that's just the way the world is. The world's complicated. Mm. It's not going to be so simple and black and white like like many assumed it was during the Cold War, right? Two more questions uh, before we wrap up, uh, Karen. I, I'm a mo in the multilateral capital of the world, Geneva. Many listening to this program will be from the continent of Africa, diplomats, NGOs, business people, or just those who know Africa well. 
The continent, the African continent, has the fastest growing population in the world. It's expected to increase its population by roughly 50% in the next 18 to 20 years, growing from 1.2 billion people today to 1.8 billion by 2035, which means it'll account for half of global population growth over the next two decades. It has huge mineral resources, you know, that the world needs and wants. Karen, what implications do you foresee, if any, when seen through the lens of global security in Africa's growing weight and importance? Yeah, good question. I mean, look, there, there's enormous opportunities in Africa and there are enormous concerns in Africa. Africa, of course, is home to uh, you know, countries that are really experiencing firsthand climate change and drought. And so there will be many, many people on the move. And I think that the concerns about migration from Africa to Europe are, uh, you know, the predictions are that, you know, what we saw in 2015, 2016 with several million people on the move were pale in comparison to what we will see in the next 20, 30 years. On the other hand, African, African populations are youthful, they're dynamic civil society in many, many countries, despite some bad leadership, civil society is really impressive. Mm. They're, they've, they've, uh, they've, you know, what, I can't think of the right term, something like hopscotch or anyway, they jumped over. Leapfrog. Uh, Leapfrog, thank you, on the, on the calm <laughs> side, where instead of worrying about getting landlines, they went straight to cell phones and were incredibly innovative in a number of countries, such as yep. Kenya, and the use of cell phones. So there's a lot of opportunity. And I think that, you know, if we can figure out uh, uh, working with African countries, how to partner with them, I, I think the challenges that we face are now pretty similar. I think Africans and Europeans, for example, face many similar challenges related to migration, to climate change. Uh, to terrorism. And I think rather than looking at Africa as, oh, we need to help them with development aid and humanitarian assistance, I think we need to think about partnering in, in much more uh, substantive ways and trying to figure out what we can learn from Africa and, uh, you know, and how to harness that incredible energy and, and as well how to work with African countries to try to figure out how to manage some of these anticipated crises that are related to climate change. I mean, that was one of your earlier questions. Is, you well, know, we'll what are we not yeah. thinking about? Right, yeah. and climate change is a, a huge, huge challenge that we all need to face together. Well, let's wrap up this conversation with that. So many people, as you know better than I do, seem to see climate change as an existential threat. How do you, in your world of global security, look at it from a security point of view, factor climate change into the analyses that you make? Yeah, it's a great question. We are starting to think. We unfortunately, we you know, we're probably a bit behind the curve at RUSI on this subject. We are starting to think more about developing more research programs on climate and security because, of course, climate causes people to move. It cause you know, as we just discussed, uh, people fight over resources when they're scarcer, whether it's water or or land uh, land use for animals. Uh, so there's a number of uh, and then, of course, organized crime gets quite involved, depending on the issue. So there are a number of issues that, that on the security side related to climate change. Uh, I think that that we need to be thinking through and communicating more effectively. I think part of the problem is we're not very good at communicating some of these threats in a way that people realize it is going to impact their day-to-day -day lives. Mm -hmm. And so maybe that'll kick kickstart them into thinking more seriously about what do we do about it? What can we do about it today to manage it in 10, 20 years? Well, I think people, governments, on ground, people on the ground, they know it because they see the, the sea. Right, they do, but governments have a lot of trouble yeah. planning for more than one or two years yeah. realistically, even though they develop these long-term plans. They have a lot of trouble doing that. That's why uh, such the climate change, the Paris Accords are so important, pulling governments together to think through what they can do together to, to reduce emissions, 
to contribute to greener economies. I mean, look, we have an opportunity to build back better and greener post-COVID. And I think that if countries take this very seriously, just as if, just as we were able to build the UN uh, after the destruction of a world war, this pandemic has really been globally catastrophic and destructive. And we should use this opportunity to make those necessary macro reforms that we have not been able to do in the past. Good, Councillor. We finish on a, on a fairly fairly optimistic note looking ahead. Thanks so much for your lucid explanations and for answering all my questions. My guest today has been Dr. Karen von Hippel, Director General of the Royal United Services Institute, known as RUSI in London. Karen, thanks a lot. That was The McKay Interview with Michael McKay. And don't forget, you can hear that interview again on our website, worldradio.ch.